You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on February 10th, 2019, a reading from the Gospel of Luke. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house, who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So if you didn't catch it from the children's sermon, today we're going to talk about obedience. What it means to obey God. And in particular, what it means to be a doer of the word. In our vision statement, we've been walking our way in this sermon series through the various parts of our new membership covenant and our vision statement and our values as a church. And today we're still in that section of the vision statement about loving God. And I said last week, that's the section we're going to spend the most time on because that's the section where we spend most of our lives as Christians, is discipleship, learning how to submit our hearts to God, learning how to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a growth process, and it takes the whole of our lives to grow into Christ, into the full stature of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to love God? Well, part of that is indeed developing an emotional attachment to God. When we love a person in our lives, we develop an emotional attachment to that person, um, that whether that's a friend or whether that's a spouse or whether that's a child. And another part of loving God is getting to know God because it's hard to love someone that you don't know. But then a third part of loving God is submitting our lives to him in obedience. Submitting our lives to him in obedience. So in the Gospel of John, it says this. Jesus was preparing his disciples for his departure. This is in the context of the Last Supper. And in chapter 14, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So a part of loving Jesus is obeying Jesus, keeping his commandments. And then he goes on from there, and he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, that's the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells in you, and he will be with you. So, Take all that stuff about the Holy Spirit, just tuck it in your back pocket for a second. We're going to come back to it in a little bit. But Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will send the Holy Spirit to help you. One of our values as a church is lively faith, which is another way of saying mature faith or living faith or active faith. We don't want to be pew warmers, like, like, you know, basketball bench warm. We don't want to be pew warmers. We want to be active, involved, lively Christians with lively faith. We want our faith to make a difference in our lives. And so the way we say that in our value statement is that our faith in Christ means 
to be, uh, is meant to be lived and it should transform every aspect of our lives. We seek to always be growing and maturing in the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Last week, we talked about scripture and prayer as two foundational spiritual disciplines for the Christian life. And they are very important, and I don't want to discount them at all. But here's the thing I need you to know about scripture and prayer as disciplines. Christian growth can't be accomplished with head knowledge alone. Christian growth can't be accomplished with head knowledge alone because the things that we know need to be put into practice. We need to live them out. And that's the difference between a dead faith and a lively faith. A deadly faith is still faith. It believes that Jesus is real. It believes that the things he said are true. But a lively faith puts those things into practice. A lively faith is a faith that exhibits a transformed life. I recently uh, had someone uh, send me a YouTube video, and this YouTube video was by a guy named Selfie Dad. I don't know why he's called Selfie Dad, but that's what he's called. And in this video, he, he does sort of a, it looks like a youth ministry skit of sorts. He's in his house, and it shows him looking into his teenage daughter's room. And he gets kind of a grumpy look on his face, and he stomps down the hall to where his teenage daughter is sitting on the couch looking at her iPhone with ear pods in. And he says, I thought I told you to clean your room. And she says, oh, yes, and I'm so glad that you did, Dad. She takes out her ear pods. She says, I took what you said to heart. I really feel convicted about what you said, that I need to clean my room. I feel like that's right, and I want to be a tidier person. And so I looked it up in the Bible, all the things I could find about being a tidier person, and I got some books from the library about how to tidy things up and how to, how to be a Christian with a, an orderly life. And I knew I needed some help, so I got some of my friends together, and we formed an accountability group where we're going to talk together about what it means to clean your room and, and how to do that in our lives. But notice, her room was still a mess, right? And the, the father doesn't quite know what to say, and he just sort of walks away. And that's how we can live our lives sometimes if we don't take the truth we learn from Scripture and apply it to our lives. We can spend so much time on the consumption of Scripture, on the head knowledge, on knowing Jesus, that we forget that we actually need to do something about it. We need to turn our lives over to him. And so we read in James this morning, this wonderful passage, this challenging passage, where he says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. When we don't put the things that we've learned into practice, we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we're in a better place than we actually are. We lull ourselves into a place of perceived spiritual security when, in fact, we are actually far from Jesus. We might know a lot about him. We might know a lot about what the Bible says. We might believe that all of it's true. But if we are only hearers of the word and not doers of the word, then we think we're okay when in actuality we're far from Christ. I don't know if any of you have ever had surgery. I've been blessed not to have surgery. But if I had to have surgery, 
I was thinking about what kind of a surgeon I would want. Think about what kind of surgeon you would want if you had a, a surgery coming up. Would you want a surgeon who went to med school and got A's in every class, but has never actually performed surgery? Or would you want a surgeon who maybe got B's in some of his classes, but he's done the same surgery 500 times successfully? Which surgeon would you want? The second one, yeah, the second one. We'd all want the second one. We want the experienced surgeon who has a proven track record of coming through and doing what he says he can do. That's the kind of surgeon we'd all want. And that's the kind of Christian we all want to be. We don't want to be a Christian who just studies the faith. We need to study the faith. We need to read our Bibles. That's what last week was all about. We need to do those things. But we need to take a step beyond that and actually put it into practice. We need to practice our faith and live it out. In our membership covenant, the way we we talk about this is in point number four. It says, I will observe my baptismal vows to lead an upright and sober life and not give scandal to the church. I read that one more time. I will observe my baptismal vows to lead an upright and sober life and not give scandal to the church. So, of course, the question there is, what are my baptismal vows? Do you all remember what you promised when you were baptized? A lot of you were babies when that happened. Well, let's look in the prayer book, because that's where the baptismal service is. In the ACNA prayer book that is in development, it's going to come out in just a few months. Um, we'll have printed copies very soon. This is what it says. We, we saw it at Caleb's baptism just a few weeks ago. We renounce three things, and we accept three things. So what are the three things we renounce? First of all, we renounce the world, and then the flesh, and then the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And those are three things that we've identified over a long period of time, many years of church history. They are the the three main sources of temptation for us. The world tempts us in all kinds of ways and tries to draw us away from Christ and to believing that the things of the world are more important than Jesus, to lift them up as idols in our lives. The flesh, we receive temptation from within ourselves, to make ourselves God, to put ourselves on God's throne, to put ourselves in that place of authority in our lives. And then the devil, the one who fell a long time ago and wanted to take everybody down with him, and so he is the father of lies, he is the one who deceives, and he's trying to tempt us away from God and put himself in God's place. Do you see a theme there? All three of these sources of temptation are trying to draw us away from God and to something else. And so we reject them all. Of course, we still live in the world. Of course, we still need to drive cars. Of course, we need to still have roofs over our heads. We're not rejecting those things, but we're rejecting their hold on our lives. So we renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then the very next thing is we turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as our Savior. We recognize that he is the only one that can save us from all those things that we're renouncing. And if we would just renounce things without filling that space with something else, we're just going to go slipping back into those things. So we turn to Jesus Christ, and he is our replacement for the world, the flesh, and the devil. He is the one true desire of our hearts. And when we enthrone him on our hearts, we put him in his rightful place, and our lives go better because of it, because we've turned away from those things that deceive us, that lead us in false directions, and we put the one true king on the throne of our hearts. 
So we turn to Jesus and accept him as our Savior. And then it says, do you joyfully receive the Christian faith as revealed in the Bible? That's what we talked about last week. Do you accept as true what we believe as Christians? Do you accept the Bible as true? Do you accept what we say every week in the creeds as true? Do you believe that that's true? Sort of an intellectual question. Do you joyfully receive the Christian faith as revealed in the Bible? And then thirdly, will you obediently keep God's holy will and commandments and walk in them all the days of your life? That's the third thing that we accept in our baptismal vows. Will you obediently keep God's holy will and commandments and walk in them all the days of your life? And the answer to that question is, I will, the Lord being my helper. I will, the Lord being my helper. Of course, we can't be perfectly obedient on our own strength. There are lots of people who have tried. They usually trip and fall flat on their faces. It doesn't go well for them because we can't do this on our own. Remember before Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and I will give you another helper, even the spirit of truth. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to live in us, to dwell in us, to change us from the inside out. And so with God's help, we commit to being obedient to God's will and commandments. We can't do it on our own. We have to do it in the strength of God. And then taking that a step further, in Membership Covenant Point 12, it says, I will affirm and follow the biblical standards of sexual morality and ethics. Now, you might just scratch your head there and say, we just talked about sin. We just talked about following God's commandments and obeying him. Why are we going to single out sexual morality in its own point of the membership covenant? Why is that important? It's important for a couple of reasons, not least of which is that Paul, in, in his letter to the Corinthians, singles it out as a different category of sin. Not that it's a worse category of sin, it's just a different category of sin. And so... And by that I mean all sin is bad, right? All sin is bad. So we're not talking about bad or worse. We're talking about two different kinds of bad. In a section in 1 Corinthians, he talks about fleeing sexual immorality. And beginning in verse uh, 18 of chapter 6, it says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Every other kind of sin is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then he continues to says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. It's not a matter of indifference what we do with our bodies. And Jesus, or Paul gives us a couple of good reasons to glorify God in our bodies by refraining from sexual immorality. First of all, it's a sin against our own body. And second of all, it defiles God's temple, which is what our body is. In the ESV study Bible, on this verse, there's a study note that says, unity with Christ is incompatible with all sin. That's what we just said. No sin is, is worse than another sin. Unity with Christ is incompatible with all sin. 
but particularly with sexual sin. Because sexual union has a spiritual component. Sexual activity outside of marriage is a unique sin both against Christ and one's own body. Within marriage, sexual union is not only allowed, but has positive spiritual significance. So within marriage, sex is good because God designed it within that, within that covenant. That's what God made it for, and it's good and holy in that context. Outside of marriage, it's not. When you use it wrongly, it has bad, disastrous consequences for our lives. And so any sexual activity outside of marriage is out of bounds for the Christian. And this includes pornography and other forms of sexual addiction. But we also need to make sure that sexual intimacy within marriage is godly. There are all kinds of ways that you can take something that God intended to be holy and godly in marriage and break it apart and use it for ill and sinful purposes. And so we want to make sure that, uh, that sex inside of marriage is holy sex, godly sex. It's important. We want to be chaste as Christians. Because these sins are sins against our own bodies, and they're sins that defile the temple of God's Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, you remember the temple was the place where God promised he would dwell. It was in Jerusalem in one physical location. It had the tabernacle in it, and God's presence was there. Now imagine going into that temple. There were lots of guards that would prevent you from going in if you were a Gentile. Imagine going into that temple and sacrificing something like a pig on the altar, something that God had said, do not do this, and sacrificing it to a God that was not God. This happened a number of times. We talked about that a couple of months ago in, in one of my sermons. That would be a major offense to the Jewish people, more importantly, it would be a major offense to God because it would be defiling God's temple, the place where God himself had chosen to dwell. And God has chosen to dwell in us, in our bodies. And so we want to make sure that we don't defile our bodies as temples of God's Holy Spirit. Now, I don't say any of this to pass judgment. Sexual sin is a trap that's easy to fall into and very hard to get out of. And I don't know what's going on in your lives. I don't know what's happening in that area of your life. And so I'm not saying any of this to judge you personally. But I wouldn't be a faithful pastor if I didn't warn you of the spiritual danger of sexual sin. Paul wouldn't be a faithful apostle if he didn't warn us in the way that he warned us in 1 Corinthians. And so if you are trapped in some form of sexual sin, I want you to know that there's help available. There's a men's conference coming up in the diocese next weekend. Um, and if you or someone you know is struggling with this, it would be a great place for you to go to get help for yourself or to learn how to help another. That one's just for men, but there are plenty of resources to help women as well because this is just as much of a trap for women as it is for men. So we need to obey God. We need to obey Jesus. It's a part of loving Jesus. But what happens when we do fall flat on our faces? What happens when we do mess up? What happens when we do sin? None of us are able to keep God's commandments perfectly. The first letter of John reminds us of this. And he says in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, 
we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There's that word deceiving ourselves again. Remember James said it. He said, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Well, similarly, it's a deceit to ourselves if we fail to recognize that we are sinful people. If we fail to recognize the sin that's in our lives. And it's easy to gloss over our sin. It's easy to forget about the little ways that we sin against God, or maybe even the big ways that we sin against God. And so it's important to pause and reflect on those ways that we have fallen short, on those ways that we haven't obeyed God fully. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But the hope that we all have is in Jesus, because Jesus' blood will wash away all of our sin when we confess our faults and when we repent. And so verse 9 of that same passage continues. He says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus is quick to forgive us when we turn to him in repentance, when we come to him and say, I messed up, I didn't do the right thing, I didn't do what you asked me to. And when we intend to turn around in the opposite direction and go the other way. That's what repentance is. It's, it's a confession of what we've done wrong, and it's an intention of our will to go in the opposite direction, to turn to Jesus. That's what we did in the baptismal covenant too, isn't it? We renounced all the things in the world and we turned to Jesus. And when we confess our sins, we do the same thing. We renounce the thing that we just did, and we turn to Jesus. We turn back to him. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We repent to God, but we also have to repent to our brothers and sisters whom we've sinned against. God can wipe away the the eternal spiritual consequences of our sin, but we still have to reconcile with our brothers and sisters here on earth, with our husbands, with our wives, with our children, with our friends, with our neighbors, with the random person we sinned against on the street. We need to confess our sins to them and ask for their forgiveness. But beyond that, forgiveness needs to go both ways. If we desire to be forgiven, we also have to forgive others. That's what Jesus, Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. He said, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Or forgive us our trespasses or debts or whatever translation you, you learned when you were growing up. Forgive us as we forgive. Forgive us as we forgive. And so the expectation, both from the Lord's Prayer and many other places in Jesus' teaching, is that if we want to be forgiven as people, we have to be willing to extend the same grace to others that we desire to receive. We have to be willing to forgive others when they sin against us. Membership Covenant point eight says, I will practice forgiveness daily according to the Lord's teaching and handle conflict in accordance with Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18. So practicing forgiveness, I'm not going to say that's an easy thing, but it's a simple thing to understand, that we need to forgive those who sin against us. But what, what is this about conflict? What is Jesus saying about resolving conflict in Matthew 18? I'm pretty sure what he says is when, when your brother sins against you, 
get puffed up and really mad and red in the face and stomp down the hall and never speak to that person ever again. That, that's what he says, right? And maybe we should look it up again. Oh, let's see. That, that might not have been quite right. Let's, let me read it for you, actually, what it says. Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, get rid- no, no. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you will have gained your brother. So when your brother or your sister or your friend, or what it's a general term brother, when someone sins against you, you need to go tell them about it. If they haven't come and told you about it, if they haven't repented of that sin, you need to go and tell them about it. Say, it really hurt me when you said that. Or it really hurt me when you did that. Or this is how it impacted me when you did such and such. I don't think it was right. Now you might say, well, if I go and do that, that'd be kind of an uncomfortable conversation and they, they, might not, they might not agree with me. They might think it was okay what they did. And then they, they just, you know, what would happen? They might get away with it. But that's not what it says. It says if they won't listen to you, Jesus has an answer for this, if they won't listen to you, Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so if that person won't listen to you, if they won't acknowledge the way that they hurt you, then take someone else with you too. Another Christian believer who understands the scriptures, who understands how to apply God's commandments to our lives and talk to them about it with that other person. But they still might not listen to you. Well, Jesus has an answer for that, too. Jesus says, And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. So, widen the circle even a little bit further. Now, it doesn't say, tell it to social media. It doesn't say, post it on Facebook. It doesn't say, send an email to all of your friends, or start up a phone chain and and tell everybody about what, what this person did and how bad they are. It says, tell it to the church meaning more the the leaders of the church. Tell it to the leaders of the church. And if they still won't listen to you, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him be cast out of the church. This is what we call church discipline, or sometimes we call it excommunication. We mean this person has put themselves outside of the bounds of godly discipline because they haven't listened even to the church. They haven't listened to the godly rebukes from their friends, and their friend's friend, and even the leadership of the church. And so we, we put them outside of the fellowship of believers. But even then, it's not to cast them aside and, and throw them away and stomp on their head. That's not what we do as Christians, because we continue to pray for their repentance, because our goal is for that person to be reconciled and brought back into the family of God. That's how we're supposed to handle conflict as Christians. And so when someone sins against us, We don't want to just let it go and walk away and never have anything to do with that person again. And the same thing when you have a problem with this church or with me as the leader of this church or the vestry of this church. You don't want to get huffy and stomp away in silence and we never hear from you again. We want you to come and talk to us, to give us a chance to repent if we have sinned, to hear what it is you have to say and how it was that you were hurt. We want to hear those things. I want to hear those things. So don't just drift off in silence. Come and talk to us about it. And let's find an opportunity for repentance and reconciliation. 
This is how we handle conflict as Christians. We do it by talking to one another, by forgiving one another, and by asking forgiveness when we hurt others. And then a step beyond that in point nine of our membership covenant says, I will choose to believe the best of my brothers and sisters in Christ, offering them the same charitable assumption I hope to receive from them. Miscommunication is a tool of the devil. And I mean that literally. Sometimes the devil tries to, commune our, to confuse our communication to draw division and sow seeds of doubt in the church, sow seeds of division in the church and split people apart from one another. I think it happens in marriages all the time, perhaps more than any other place, because marriages are places where you communicate more than any other place. And so it's really easy for those seeds of miscommunication to be sown by the devil in those places. But it also happens in the church. It happens in friendships. Don't let miscommunication divide your relationships up. And how do we go about that? We extend charitable assumptions to people. Maybe that thing that they said to you wasn't actually intended to be offensive to you. Maybe it was just intended as something they were offering. Maybe they were actually even trying to help you, but you heard it in a different way. Maybe you misunderstood their intentions in saying those words. Maybe you misunderstood the words themselves and what they meant by them. We need to give people the benefit of the doubt. We need to let them be, as we say in our government, innocent until proven guilty. And so if there's any doubt whatsoever, that there's any possibility they didn't mean something mean or negative or bad by what they said or did, we need to give them that charitable assumption and go talk to them about it like we just talked about and extend them as much grace as possible. This is what it means to be a doer of God's word. It means we listen to Jesus' commandments as we read them in the Bible and we take them to heart. And we don't just listen to them, but we do them. We actually clean up our room when we're supposed to clean up our room instead of just studying about cleaning up our room. And when we do mess up, we repent and we ask for forgiveness, both from God and from our brothers and sisters. And then finally, when others sin against us, we forgive them and give them the same grace that God has given to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for teaching us the way that we should go. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to take your word into our hearts, that you would transform our lives by your Holy Spirit, that you'd help us to do this in your strength and not in our strength. And when we fall down, Lord, we pray that you would pick us back up, that you would help us to seek you in repentance, and that you'd help us to extend forgiveness to others when they sin against us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org slash sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.